This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Sandy Clef, Sean Rotar. Sean is off for the next several days. Dr. Rick Perea sitting in, and it was a fast-moving first hour with uh, Dr. P. I want to remind everybody, as we uh, mentioned a little bit earlier in the broadcast, uh, you can get your checkup from the neck up from Dr. Rick Perea, one of the foremost performance psychologists in America, a man I've known for more than a decade now. Uh, You get your checkup from the neck up here on Wellness Wednesdays. And uh, we uh, play that program from 5.30 to 6 with Dr. Perea. And it is also available via podcast at uh, milehighsports.com. We did our first installment yesterday. And we'll talk more about that uh, tomorrow and uh, what we spent at least half the show talking about and connection with a terrific charity event that's going on uh, Saturday afternoon, early Saturday evening at Arapahoe High School. But uh, to talk about Dr. Perez, to talk about uh, the former psychologist, the world champion Denver Broncos in 2015. He uh, worked with the Colorado Rockies uh, uh, the year before they uh, began a little bit of a run, uh, unprecedented. Uh, in the history of the Rockies so far, uh, they made the playoffs in consecutive years, 2017, 2018, uh, led by many of the people you worked uh, yeah. with the closest, including uh, uh, Cargo yes, sir. and uh, a variety of others, Nolan Arenado and uh, uh, Kyle Freeland, Chuck Nasty, and all yep. the rest uh, during those, uh, yes, they have to be called glory years now of 17 and 18 right. with the Rockies and, of course, Dr. Perea also has worked with the now world champion Denver Nuggets, but most importantly, he helps middle and high school performers to reach peak levels. So whether you're an everyday performer at work, at play, or at school, call Dr. P today at 720-287-0933. That's 720-287-0933. Or look him up at Dr. P at think1number4u.org. That's think1for u.org improve my mental health over the years and he'll do the same for you uh we were talking i think mostly during the breaks about uh, Deion sanders uh, and the university of colorado uh having now finished up their home season two remaining regular season games uh if they can somehow manage to win them both they'd finish six and six and go to a bowl game uh obviously one game out of the two that seems most winnable is the game they'll be playing in Pullman on Friday night, 8.30 start against Washington State University, uh, a program that was uh, ranked earlier in the year but has fallen on hard times. And uh, though Washington State is favored, I think CU, if they play pretty much in the manner they did against Arizona, and I thought in many ways that was the best game they played since their opener against TCU, uh, win or lose. Uh, if they play that way again, I think they have a chance uh, to win at Washington State. But a lot of the talk uh, around Deion Sanders this week is centered on uh, uh, Stephen A. Smith's declaration on ESPN's first take that uh, of all the candidates for the now vacant job at Texas A&M, it should be Deion Sanders who is hired to uh, follow in the footsteps of uh, Jimbo Fisher, Kevin Sumlin, 
Mike Sherman and Dennis Francione, all notable coaches hired by Texas A&M, paid a lot of money, and all, at least in the minds of the folks at Texas A&M, all failed miserably. Yeah. (laughs) And got paid. And, in fact, uh, Jimbo Fisher's contract calls for him to get paid the remaining $76 million on his deal, regardless of what he does. There's no offset language in the deal. He could go somewhere and coach for $76 million a year, and he'd still get his $76 million from Texas A&M. Right. And that's staggering. When you think Isn't that about amazing? It. it is amazing. I and mean, I don't think people really stop and digest that for a minute. The money. There's no money like Texas money. No. And it isn't just at the University of Texas. Oh. It's at A&M. Right. And Maybe even more so yeah. at A&M. At least they like to spend it. Yeah. I, I, I worked with a quarterback there named Trevor Knight um, probably seven, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, someone was the coach yeah. then. And it was it was really convenient because I was go I'd go over to the Texans and work with Brock Osweiler, then right. drive over to A and M. I couldn't believe how much money was in that in that organization. <laughs> I mean, people would pull me aside and say, "We got money like you've never seen." I mean, one of the coaches said, "We have four or five times the money Alabama does." Yeah, and, and so you know, certainly I, Nick Saban felt that way that. a couple of years ago when yeah. he was basically saying, "Hey, we need to get up to their level yeah. in spending," and it came out. Uh, a little bit differently, he essentially said uh, the folks at A&M bought their team, yeah. um, which may be kind of sort of true, but was not the best thing to say, and he had to walk that back, of course. But Nick Saban, being the great coach that he is, he had just lost to Texas A&M, right. and he felt they had out-recruited him yep. <laughs> uh, because of the money they had and the disparity between what they had and what Alabama has. And then being the great coach that he is, he whips him the last two years <laughs> yeah. with all their money. And those two losses to Alabama probably had a lot to do with the dismissal of Jimbo Fisher. Yeah, I think so. And I think to address your original question about Dion um, and then Stephen A. Smith, I, I would say this to Stephen A. Smith, support that supposition. Like, why? Why do you think he should go there? Um, you know, I, if you look at his body of evidence, of, of what he did at, at Jackson State, and then you look at here, um, I, I don't think it's 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 enough to support that you would take him on as your next coach, and especially that big of a financial commitment. I think if what you're saying is that you want to bring you that Dion can bring a financial base in terms of the circus and the hoopla that he brings, then okay, you can make an argument for that. But if I'm down in College Station. Yeah. I want to call I want a team that's built from the ground up. Those people know football in Texas. Okay, this is not this is not the same nothing against Colorado, but we're just not the same level as Texas in terms of high school football oh, no. and the yeah, foundation of, of understanding it. So people down there, they'll they, they can smell a rat. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you you can't just hire somebody because they'll bring a circus to town, because they'll bring income and revenue to town. There, there's got to be a, fo- a solid foundation of football built that takes time. And that's what I've said from day one with Dion. You can't just do it and flip a team the way he's tried to do it. And I predict, I, I might be off, but I, I don't think, I think they'll lose their last two games at CU yeah. and they'll finish well, four and eight. predicted that several months ago. Yeah, and, and I think it, it, it should be a sobering call to people to understand that um, he hasn't reinvented the wheel of how to recruit. 
He hasn't reinvented the wheel as to how to build a football team. It's built from the ground up, and he'll learn that, or else he won't learn that, but I think he's going to need to learn that. I've even seen a little bit of a shift in Dion in the last three weeks. Oh, I have too, Yeah, especially in the last week. Now, he's talking more in terms of the long game. They aren't the statements that are coming out that are so outlandish and uh, filled with gloating and right. uh, suppositions about what's going to happen in the short term. Yeah. It's more long-term thinking. Uh, and even I thought the way he spoke about the Texas A&M deal and said, listen, I'm, I, I've got roots here now. Mm-hmm. I live here. I have sons and daughters who go here. I have another daughter who comes to every one of our games. I pay taxes here to run into the right. whole uh, spiel. Uh, he, he, Forty had slipped. He started to say, "I collect taxes here." Yeah. Uh, I, I, he's made a lot of money uh, for a lot of people, including people at the university. Right. Uh, no doubt about that. And I think now he's beginning to realize that you can't simply speak something into existence. Right. Yeah. And that there has to be a structure. There has to be a plan for, it's like building an organization. You know, if, if sales are down 20% at Google or Apple, you can't come in and in six weeks and turn that around. You might be able to make a, a dent and an adjustment to it, but it takes time. It takes time of personnel. It takes time of structure of your organization understanding, you know, role acceptance, role adherence, how people perform in their roles. There's a lot of science to performance, Sandy. There really is. And I, and I know I say that a lot, but I want people to understand that because some of these people in these high-profile positions, and sport is one of them, where these coaches are leading organizations getting paid millions of dollars, these coaches, that don't understand any science of performance. And so for me... If I'm on a selection committee in the future, I want my coaches to have some knowledge, some competency of how to run an organization. Because, you know, you can argue that a head coach in college football, a head coach in the NFL is more of a CEO. The defensive coordinator, the offensive coordinator, they're the sure. ones that put together the game plans. Yeah. They're the ones that put together all of that. And there's nothing that. wrong with that. That's, that's the common way yeah. coaching is executed right. now, even to an extent with Nick Saban. Yeah. At Alabama, Nick Saban doesn't call plays on offense. Exactly. He doesn't call the defense. But but also you But he's understand. involved. He's engaged in the game, obviously. Right. But he's letting his assistants coach, and he's a challenging guy to work for, but he does give his assistants a chance to work. But you know what Nick Saban has that Dion does not have? Humility. Nick Saban, no matter how many national championships he'll win, he still has an element of humility to say, you know, if we don't do X, Y, and Z, we're not going to be a very good football team. Just like Lou Holtz in 1988, they're 8-0 on their way to a national championship. And one of the reporters asked her in a press conference, you're ranked number one in the nation, 8-0. He says, what, do you, what can you tell us about your team? And he says, we don't have a very good football team right now. He says, we're not practicing well. We're not performing well. We're winning games. But part of it's that our, our opponent. He said, we don't have a very good football team. And the media thought he was kidding, but he wasn't. He was being honestly serious. And then later at the ninth, 10th, 11th game, they started reaching their potential and won a national championship right. that year. But 
Dion is doesn't have a humble bone in his body. He'll he'll brag about somehow they had a great punt or something. I mean, something that has no warrant. He'll bra- he'll find a way to brag about it. I would say I you know, and, and this is going to sound strange. I actually like Dion. I think he's got great energy. I think he's passionate, but I think he's just a little misguided. You can't lead a football team the way you cheer on a football team if you're a spectator or that you the way you play. You know, if you're a DB and you get yourself ready that way, great. But there's a way you've got to lead these guys. You've got to teach them how to be humble in all situations and don't act like you're you're more privileged than any other team because you're not. You have to go out, and that game is won in the front seven. Let's not make a mistake. You can have skill position guys that have speed, and they do, and I love that. But that game is won and lost in that front seven, and that's a war up there. That is a war up there. And when you understand that you and – and I think he does with his linemen, but you pick these linemen, okay? You pick these linemen, and now you're going to say, I'm giving up on them? So you got to be really careful. The offensive lineman, yes. Yeah, the offensive lineman. But you got to be careful with that, Sandy, because these are human beings. And here's the other thing. And I I spoke about this during the offseason, and it it was a hard point to make because clearly they had to make changes. And they brought him in. They knew exactly what he would do as a change agent. He'll never be able to do that again at Colorado or anywhere else. Yeah. What he did this this past off season, but I think they, uh, to coin a phrase, threw a few babies out with the bathwater. Yeah, uh, along the offensive line, they had three starting offensive linemen, one of whom is now a starter at one of the top ranked teams in the country, Florida State. Yep, another is a starter at Purdue. Not a great team, but you know, Purdue's. Having about the same kind of season Colorado is. Yeah. Right? In terms of one loss rate. Uh, Ryan Walters is the coach at Purdue. Yeah. Uh, probably someone C should have hired somewhere along the way. <laughs> Never did. Um, and another lineman is starting at UCLA and played against Colorado a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. UCLA's pretty good. Yeah. Now, I, UCLA's not a ranked team now, but they were ranked for a while, and they're, you know, middle of the road, back. 12 team. So it, Colorado's back near the bottom, clearly better than last year, but they've got one league win at Arizona State, a game they could have lost, yep. uh, weren't exactly dominant. We've got three offensive linemen starting for FBS programs that they ran off, right. and they've got five guys who Dion says well, basically got to replace all five. Yeah. Well, wait, wait a minute. You had three guys here that are good enough to start for Florida State, Purdue, and UCLA, and you ran them off. Right. And see, you know what, Sandy? If you, the way you just articulated that, if you were to ask Deion Sanders that, he wouldn't even let you finish that. Right. He would cut you off. He would cut you off because he knows that you're going to articulate it in a way that it's indefensible. And that's the issue I have with him. He's so busy postulating his viewpoint. He virtually has no listening skills. I mean, when I look at him as a communicator, and, you know, even though I have a Ph.D. in psychology, I have three master's degrees, and one of them is in speech and rhetoric. And so I, I study human communication. And he, his listening skills are non-existent, like non-existent. Listen to him. He, when a reporter asks him a question, 
he cuts him off almost every single time. And being that you have a reputation of being intelligent, articulate, he would cut you off as soon as you got to a point that may be making some sense and holds holds water. Yeah, he's going to cut you yeah. off. So he never Dion is never forced to answer questions in a succinct, sequential way. And that's where he's immature because he's allowed to be, remain immature. His competency, we don't know it because he's never allowed to speak. All he does is he quotes and these these rhymes and these things that people go, oh, yeah, man, that's that's right. It, it's not substance, though. It's not foundational stuff that's leadership based, that's performance based. And I know that because of my background and what I do. So that's why I know this just this, this does not have substance. Now, if he pulls back, he reigns back, and he becomes a little more humble, and he says there's a lot that I'm learning every yes. year as a yes. first-year coach in a, in a Power 5 conference. I'm learning, and I'm getting better. We're going to show up, and we're going to compete. I can drink yeah. that all day long. Right. But the way right. he does it, so yeah. dogmatic and pragmatic that you'd have and, no room for analysis. But as, as you said, a little less so uh, in recent weeks, and I think particularly yeah. in, in the last week. Uh, I mean, I think this is a winnable game uh, coming up, but he hasn't spoken one way or the other about Washington State or about their prospects, and I think that's a trap he fell into. And, yes, <laughs> he'd get asked about it, and people know how he is, so they'll tend to ask him questions to which yeah. they'll get a response that is uh, noteworthy, if not always headline-worthy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do think uh, – Maybe for this year, the lesson's been learned a little late. But you know what? Four and eight was always probably going to be, if not the ceiling, then pretty darn close to it. Yeah, yeah. And I think they have a chance maybe on Friday night. Uh, they won't win in Utah. But five and seven, I think it would be just fine if he had framed it differently. Right. Up from one and 11 to five and seven. Yeah. And just yeah. on the basis of getting attention alone, there's nothing wrong with his taking credit for that. That's right. That, but 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 to move on to his manner of building his team, motivating his team, I, I just think he's hit a lot of wrong notes. Yeah. I, I I agree okay. with you on uh, on that count. Someone uh, as a coach who on Saturday night I thought hit all the right notes after his team got slaughtered and even the players admit kind of stopped playing in the third period. They come back in the next two games and I'm talking about the Colorado Avalanche. They beat Seattle five to one on Monday. And last night they won over a very good young team, at least at the start of this year, the Anaheim ducks eight to two exactly the same score by which they lost on Saturday night. So the reaction to this coach who has connected with his players was to go out and play the next two games with their hair on fire and win them by a combined score of 13 to three. We'll talk about the avalanche a little bit when we continue right here on mile high sports. Told me about her, the way she lied. 
Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Set ahead. Here comes Kimmy Ronta busting through. Shoot and scores! Joel Kimmy Ronta. He split the D. He fires it right through the body of Dostal for his first goal as a Colorado Avalanche. Well, this is a goal and an assist for him tonight. Now coming after an assist on his first game two nights ago. And he slides that one seven hole as well. The fourth line coming in with one more goal. And Kimmy Ronta's speed. It's noticeable out here. Just goes towards the net. Mark Mosher, Mark Harkoff, on the call for Altitude TV as the Avalanche plastered the Anaheim Ducks last night at Ball Arena 8-2. And that fourth line of whom they were uh, speaking, Olofsson centering Cogliano and uh, Kivaranta, had three goals out of the eight had two assists for a combined five points. Cogliano was plus three on the night. Olofsson was plus two and Kivaranta was plus two and just nine minutes and 29 seconds of ice time. Pretty good work and a lot of secondary scoring. That's been a major question with the avalanche, but uh, I hearken back to Saturday night when the Avalanche lost the St. Louis Blues by the same score they won by last night. And after the game, among other things, head coach Jared Bednar talked about poor execution. He added another word, which we don't need to include here. You get the idea. Poor execution and guys giving up all over the ice in the third period. Asked how many breakaways did they have? In the third period, three, well, two of those breakaways ended up in the back of Natty went on to add every rush they had in the third period against us resulted in a scoring chance, if not in a goal. Every single rush. And we were giving the puck away, trying three-foot passes in traffic that were never going to go through. Basically just lazy stuff. He referred to quit or quitting on three separate occasions. But clearly it already spoken to his players, before issuing those remarks. And, in fact, they were remarks echoed by more than one player in that locker room uh, after the game. He's also a championship coach. So he's earned the right at least three or four times a year to go off on his team when he senses they have played with no effort. His effort's a tough thing to coach. (laughs) <laughs> there are a lot of things involved with coaching. If you've got to just beg guys to try, right. you're, you're, you are you haven't made a connection with them. Yeah. If you're begging guys to try. But when they – and I get his concluding remark is, you don't work in the game, but we will work in practice. There you go. Yeah, you work in practice. If you're not willing to work in the game, you'll work in practice. Yeah. But motivation comes from a climate and culture of the team. And that's built in every day in their practice. It, their practices and their norms, the things they do every day, builds either an intrinsic motivation or extrinsic. Yep. And intrinsic is they're motivated from within. No matter if they're ahead, behind, it doesn't matter. They play hard. So there perhaps is something going on, a dynamic within the team 
that's influencing their mood. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a scientific trail we have. Thoughts lead to feelings. Yep. Feelings lead to mood. Mood leads to behavior. Behavior is your performance on the ice. Okay. So depending on your thoughts, if you want to change your performance on the ice, mm-hmm. the quickest way is to change your thoughts. That'll influence the way you feel about the game. That'll influence your mood, and then your mood influences your behavior. Because feelings, I can change your feelings right now, but it takes a little longer to influence mood. So that's the climate and culture that's built with any team, including a hockey team. And so for these guys, they need to go back out and make sure the climate and culture is where they want it to be at this point. The biggest thing that coaches really struggle with over a long season is the quadrants. Like you break it up into four or five quadrants. Sure depending on how many games. And there's a performance model, form, storm, norm, and perform. And you never want to reach that perform stage too early in the season. Because if you reach it peak too early, then you're never going to reach your potential. You know, form means you're getting together, you're deciding your team. Storm means you're figuring out, you know, positions and maybe, you know, who, what lines to play with each other. And then norm is when you start to get in the groove and then perform is when you should be heading into the playoffs. So it's nothing to panic about. It's always the best teams always storm. They need to storm because they'll never find out who they truly are unless they do storm. Um, I think, you know, I I look at even teams that don't, who get to choose their schedule, like in high school football. They get to choose their out-of-state games. And one of the things that, you know, some of the top teams, like Cherry Creek has chose, they they play some top teams in Ohio and and. Arizona, and I'm trying to encourage Dave Logan to go down to Fort Lauderdale and play St. Thomas Aquinas because he's telling school you know well. At school, I loan out, and and he talks about, you know, we're going, we're competing with everybody, and he says I'm not sure anybody can beat us. And I said they'll play you, they'll be happy to play you. And did so my we point, see them when we were down there? We did. I, I thought we did. We did. Yeah. And they had linemen. These are high school kids. Oh yeah, they had linemen two ninety three hundred pounds. All over. All over the place. Yeah, there's not, not, one not just of them. one or two. <laughs> yeah, no, they were across. Yeah, the offensive line. I mean, here's the example that it affects. My son, Keegan, and they were skilled. Yeah, my my son uh, Keegan is six two and a half. We'll just just give him the benefit of the doubt. Six three, two forty five. He's really a linebacker, but here in Colorado, he plays defensive end because there's not as much size to go around. Right. If he was playing at St. Thomas, he'd be one of their linebackers. Because yeah. they got kids 6'3 to 6'5, <laughs> right. 275 to 305, right. all over the place. All over the place. Five of them. Both sides there. of the ball. But but back to the avalanche, that they, they've got to understand that the climate and culture is what really cultivates motivation in the players. And then also, be okay to storm. It's okay to storm at this point in the season. As you go on through the season, though, you want to start to norm and then perform when you get to the playoffs. Right. And even when they were winning, I gave Bednar credit for this, too. They started 6-0 and on their first six games. And he said that there are other levels for us to get to. Yeah. That we have not reached. There you go. So winning sometimes is what I call the great deodorant. Mm-hmm. But the smartest coaches, Saban's like this too. Yeah. Even when they win, if you're not Larry Brown is like this. You're not playing the right way. That's right. And you can't sustain winning playing that way. Yeah. And eventually there will be a price to pay. Right. So Bednar, before the 8-2 to two game against them on Saturday night, had been talking weeks earlier about how they really weren't, they were getting comfortable. They weren't reaching the level they would need to reach. 
yeah. which is their standard, which is a championship standard, they hadn't reached it yet. Yeah. In case some guys thought they had. And some guys are, you know, they have brilliant players. Nathan McKinnon's a brilliant player. Kale McCarr's a brilliant player. They they have more good to great players than any team in the NHL. But back to what you were talking about earlier. Doesn't matter from night to night. And you have the St. Louis Blues, the Avalanche have crunched in the playoffs multiple times in recent years. And they were all but laughing at the Avalanche in the third period because mm-hmm. it was so clear that the yeah. Avalanche were bagged it for the night, Mm -hmm. which should have resulted had they not had some injuries in a full-fledged bag skate the next day. Yeah. And bag skates are where you go from your goal line to the blue line and then back, top speed. Then you go from your goal line to the red line and back, top speed. Then you go from your goal line to the other blue line, the far blue line, and come back. And then you go all the way to the other goal line and come back. And you do that over and over and over. They throw the pucks away. There will be no pucks in practice today. We are going to just skate. And the U.S. Olympic team, the Miracle on Ice team, 1980 in Lake Placid, they used to call those drills Herbies (laughs) after the Herb Brooks uh, model of Mm -hmm. of coaching when he was displeased with a performance. They had one in Europe, and he went out. uh, This is pre-Olympics. They were playing over in Europe. And they tied against a team they should have crushed. And they're playing in a building that is not obviously their own. Brooks goes in the locker room after the end and says, don't even shower, we're going right back out there. Again, <laughs> you didn't play hard during the game. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll now, we'll put you through a bag skate, yeah. which the players would call Herbies. Yeah. And he did all that. They literally turned off the lights in the building. Because the maintenance people, they want to go home. They turned off the lights in the building. And this made the movie, too. And not everything in movies like that is accurate. This was. This really happened. The lights got shut off. They're in the dark, skating back and forth. And he doesn't stop until, you know, guys are beginning to get ill. (laughs) And that the message got through to the point where you know they lost games after that and about two weeks before the olympics began they played the soviets at madison square garden and lost 10 to 1 yeah but it wasn't because they didn't play hard (laughs) yeah and then they came back and beat them in the olympics as we all know in the miracle and ice game but i i think with with hockey People look at the game and they think, wow, it's so physical. And boy, it, it's it's instinctive a lot. There isn't a lot of regimen or structure, mm-hmm. set plays and stuff. <laughs> but there's a lot of psychology that goes oh, into it. Yes. And one of the great coaches of any sport of all time was Scotty Bowman. And Scotty Bowman was not the easiest guy to play for. His approach was a lot like Nick Saban's. And Scotty Bowman would... You know, they're generally four lines, four forward lines, and three defense pairs in a game. And he'd mix defense tandems up. He'd mix lines up all the time if he was dissatisfied with 
the performance, the collective performance of that line. He'd mix them up, and the players wouldn't necessarily like it, but the Avalanche did some of that these last two games, and they won them by scores of 5-1 to one and 8-2 to two with players who hadn't played a single game for them all year long involved, including Caleb Jones, the young defenseman, a brother of Seth Jones, and he played both games as if he had been playing with the team all year. And I think although they don't articulate it using the terms you use, form, storm, norm, and perform, that's what they're talking about. And I was talking to David Carl last night uh, for a coach's show, the uh, very, very young head coach at DU. They're a premier hockey program every year. And their championship season, they had a lot of bumps. But he understood the form, storm, norm, and perform. And they were peaking at the end of the year at the right time, and they raced through the playoffs, and they had two monumental upsets at what they call the Frozen Four to win the national championship. Last year, they had fewer bumps and they went stale at the end of the year. They had some injuries, but they lost their last two games last year and were shut out both times. Now they come back this year with 10 freshmen, but nine players from that national championship team of two years ago. And he's, he's a brilliant young coach. He's managed to get those guys playing together, and they're averaging five goals a game. This is a team that couldn't score a goal its last two games. Of, of last year. So uh, we will come back and we will return uh, to a, a similar sort of subject, but we'll talk about the Denver Nuggets, a team with whom you are intimately familiar. And the growth, not so much of the players, even the young ones, but the growth of the head coach, Michael Malone, who now is speaking in a manner very different from what you might have heard him say in years past at this time of year. That's coming next. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Sean and I talked about this yesterday, and this is the. Uh, Sandy and Sean program here on Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM. You can uh, go to milehighsports.com slash watch or milehighsports.com slash listen and hopefully be entertained. 
between 4 and 6 every day. Uh, you can also access this program via the Mile High Sports app. Our executive producer is the great Danny Bailey. And Rick Perea is sitting in. Dr. Rick sitting in for Sean Brotar for the next uh, few days. I'm Sandy Clough. And uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, the Nuggets during the break, and I know you've been out of town. Um, the Nuggets played the Clippers the other night, and I think, wow, what a contrast between uh, two teams. The, the Clippers are kind of the Texas A&M of the NBA. <laughs> they have the richest, and I want to get this right, yeah. he is not the richest owner in the world. There is one guy over in Europe who's richer. But Steve Ballmer, yeah, the owner of the Clippers, is richer than the folks who own the Broncos. Yeah, here, all right. And you know he seems like an exuberant guy, and you know you'd be probably like to play for a team uh, he owns. But boy, do they do some funny things, and money is no object, of right. course. And so they bring in James Harden into a situation that is already a little bit volatile because Paul George and Kawhi Leonard seem to get hurt a lot. And you've got Russell Westbrook, uh, who I think is more admirable than James Harden, but it's one of those things. You only have one basketball and you've got George who needs the ball and Leonard who needs the ball and Westbrook, who's a ball control guard. And now you add Harden to the mix and you're thinking there's no way it can work. They're too slow, they're too old, they're too small, and they're too selfish. Right? Yeah. And they're playing the Nuggets, who are kind of the antithesis of all of that. And, you know, they do what the Clippers do sometimes. Um, They make the game close. But you know, even down the stretch the last four or five minutes, you know the better team is going to be. And the Nuggets were that team. Um, the Nuggets are playing right now without Jamal Murray. And I like the attitude that Michael Malone is taking about this. First of all, right after he got hurt, hamstring injury, they said, we're, we're shutting you down for the rest of the month. Yeah. Because I think Jamal Murray, and, and you pointed this out, and I'll let you talk about it, um, has a certain aversion to missing games because of injury. Yeah. And some of that is admirable, but some of that is a reflection of maybe not as much confidence as someone like Murray should have. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, what if they do too well without me sort of thing? Um, right. And they're not winning because he's not playing. They're winning because they're really good. And even though the bench is young, uh, most nights they can rise to the occasion, and starters who have really grown, like obviously Jokic, who's just out of this world every night, Aaron Gordon, even Michael Porter Jr., are playing better than they've ever played yeah. in all areas, and they're picking up some of the slack. But uh, I think the guy who's grown the most is Michael Malone, who's saying, I've got two jobs right now we got a championship team, and my job is to win with that team. But I've also got to develop a bench made up mostly, especially now, with Reggie Jackson starting in place of Murray, 
made up mostly of young guys. Yeah. And he says, I got to develop those guys, but I got to win games at the same time. And to even acknowledge that, I think is a sign of enormous growth from Mike Malone, who would not have talked in the, in this way three or four years ago. Yeah. Well, the scientific answer is he's on his parasympathetic side. He's calm. He's calm. He's calm. He's calm. You see that even on the bench. I think he's much calmer this year than he was even last year. Even last year. And during the playoffs, I think we all noted, with one notable exception, when he went off after game two of the NBA Finals, he was calm throughout the whole playoffs. Yeah. Nothing bothered him. You know, that's what a world championship will do for you. I mean, it gives you a certain belief system and efficacy that, you know, everything we put together worked. And we were the best team in the world last year. Yeah. And so it works. We're going to replicate it. We're going to do it again. But also, as a coach, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better at where I have gaps. Every coach has gaps. Phil Jackson had gaps. You know, uh, Pat Riley had gaps. All these people, even though they performed at high levels, they still have gaps. Oh, you're exactly right. And and so the same thing with with Michael is he has gaps and he knows it. Um, You know, when I worked with him back in 16, 17, he had gaps. And I really admire him for seeking out that help and for the Denver Nuggets for seeking out that help because they understood there's more to coaching basketball than just basketball. Yes. There's the way you communicate with your players, the way you treat your players, um, the way you really interact with players on a daily basis is so important. And I think that's a part of sports and basketball that many fans don't see that human interaction because when players take the court, the field, the pool, whatever sport they're in, they're in a mood and they're in a mood for a particular reason. And I think where Michael has really grown is that he's on the calm side of his autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic side. And that allows him to think freely when you're on the sympathetic side, you're thinking narrows and you're kind of just this real pragmatic, straightforward guy who like he used to be, you know, play defense, play defense, play defense (laughs) versus now he's, he's understanding and articulating what he needs, not just now in the first quadrant of the season, but second quadrant, third and fourth to hopefully repeat a world championship. So yeah, the growth has been tremendous for him. And I think he would be the first one to admit that. I think it all comes back to neck up understanding not he he doesn't know necessarily basketball better than he did seven eight years ago but he understands people and he understands motivation and better and that's the key his father passed on recently yeah and he talked to his father all the time you're aware of this yes, he yes. and his father were as close as as father and son can possibly be and they talked after every game and his father who was i think as great an assistant coach as there's ever been in the National Basketball Association. I don't think there's anybody close to what Mike Mullen's father was as an assistant coach. Coached the bad boy teams yeah, and was responsible for a lot of the theory that so-called Jordan rules. That was, that was Brendan Malone. That, yeah. was, that was not Chuck Daly. Chuck, yeah. Chuck Daly was the CEO coach. Uh, and relied on his assistance and Malone maybe more than anybody, and he was a great people person. Yeah, I mean those teams had some very interesting personalities, those Piston teams, those bad boy teams, and he more or less, at, at least at the time, got along with everybody. In future <laughs> engagements, uh, maybe not so much with certain uh, members of that team, but uh, he. He's great. And one of the guys he coached, Damon Stoudemire, is now 
a head coach in major college basketball. Yeah. So, uh, but Michael Malone didn't need to learn more basketball. He needed to learn more about dealing with people. That's and right. He, and he did. And now he's, it, I mean, Jokic is always the guy to listen to because he's the voice of reason. It, I, you were probably out of town when this happened. A quick story. And we, we've told it before, but it, he gets up last week, I think it was about a week ago, after a game, and he says, listen, guys, I know what you're going to ask me. So why don't I just answer the questions? I know you're going to Oh, no, ask I saw that. You I saw, saw that. that? Yeah. <laughs> it was great, and they were the questions yeah. he would have been asked. He he covered everything, <laughs> including the performance of the rookie yeah. Strother yeah. coming off the bench. And he said, you know, he's going to have to learn when he gets hot they're going to put a second defender on him, yeah. and he might want to think about passing a, a, a little bit more. But he'll learn; he'll, he'll he'll grow into that. He had just scored twenty one points yeah. off the bench, but he had like one assist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah. a little more. And Jokic, of course, is as good an instructor on that. You talk about a guy who sounds like a coach now yeah. when he talks. But oh, he answered it. He it was analytical. It was topical. And it was every question he would have been yeah. asked. And it was just wonderful to hear that. But it, I listen to Aaron Gordon. He's like that. Porter's grown up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and you've got guys, young players on the bench who are like Christian Brown, who are wise beyond their years. Yeah. And, and Malone seems to understand that. And again, has established that connection now. And we always talk about how players are going to react to winning championships. We don't talk about how coaches are going to react. Right. And I think Malone and Bednar and David Carl at DU, all of whom have won championships now, are great examples yeah. of how you react to you, win, after you win. Yeah. After you win everything. You know, I mentioned earlier the etiology of behavior, the origin. I want to give credit where credit is due. Without Arturis Karnasovas, yeah. the assistant GM of the Nuggets. They wouldn't have Jokic. They wouldn't, have Jokic, yeah, they wouldn't have Jokic, and they wouldn't have encouraged Michael's work with me. And mm-hmm. so think about that. And Car- and Arturis yeah. is behind all of it. Yeah. So and he's yeah. with the Chicago Bulls now, and yeah. I give him all the love and credit in the world. Yeah. So again, there's a lot of things behind the scenes that drive the ability for a team to win a world championship. Even things that happen. Seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Bore fruit in yeah. that championship season, and they're still bearing fruit today. It is. We'll see you tomorrow at I'll 4. I'll be here. We look forward to it. Absolutely. We'll be spending all together too much time together because I'll be with you on Saturday afternoon. That's cool, though. We'll, we'll talk more about that tomorrow and, of course, Monday and Tuesday. Guess Monday. what I'm going to go do right now? What are you I'm going to go be a celebrity judge in a high school dunk contest. <laughs> all right. If that's not fun. Good luck with that. All right. Now it's time to have fun. Danny Bailey, our thanks as always. Great He's the best, job on the other side of Absolute the glass. Best. He is one of the all-time greats. Absolutely. And the musical selection. I mean, even I know some of these two. Santana? All yeah, right. There we go, Santana. baby. <laughs> I mean, come on. We'll see you tomorrow at four. Sandy and Sean right here on Mile High Sports.